You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. It's Monday, so it seemed appropriate to begin by asking a question. When was the last time you saw God? Can you think of it? The last time something happened and you immediately recognized God's presence in your midst. It's a fascinating question to me. One it seems like we want to talk out, talk about with others when we have in fact had these experiences. And I think this is easy to understand because it's hard not to love a good miracle story, isn't it? Those modern-day accounts of seemingly hopeless situations where suddenly the highly improbable occurs at just the right second, where God intervenes and gives evidence that we serve this loving, gracious, and kind Lord who steps in and can make the impossible possible. Well, a few years ago, John Smith, a 14-year-old boy, from St. Louis, Missouri, was touted as the recipient of a miracle by, of all entities, NBC News. Smith was walking across a frozen pond with two of his buddies when he was suddenly and violently sucked through the ice into the freezing water below where he remained trapped for nearly 15 minutes. When rescuers arrived on the scene and fished him out of the pond, he had no pulse. And despite attempts by rescuers to resuscitate him for over 45 minutes as he was transported from the pond to the ambulance, he remained unresponsive when he arrived at the medical center. So shortly thereafter, Smith's mother arrives on the scene, and she enters the room where the doctors are still actively working on her son. And she begins praying out loud, asking God to bring her child back to life. And the medical report that was ultimately filed says that within two minutes of the mother's arrival, the boy's heart began beating again. After battling other life-threatening complications from the accident, like dangerously low body temperatures, which threatened to shut down his vital organs, Smith made a steady and unprecedented recovery. This was a seemingly fatal ordeal, and he came back to life. And the attending physician, Dr. James Garrett, said John's recovery was something like he had never, ever seen before in his medical career, a bona fide miracle. So miracles do still happen today, and God is clearly seen in these moments. Maybe you have been privy to or the recipient of such an act of God, but what if you haven't been? I'm guessing there are plenty of us in the room today who have not looked death in the face and overcome it or defied the odds of science or medicine or any other force on earth. So what then? Well, in many instances, we go looking for God in the strangest of places. Uh, There's the incident where Jesus was seen in the banana or the account of Jesus being seen in the candy bar. Jesus seen in the plywood. Or my very personal favorite, Jesus in the Cheeto. 
Now, as ridiculous as these sightings may be, I do think they speak to this primal desire we have to know that we're not alone in this world, to know that we are in the presence of God, our creator, our sustainer, and to know that the one who gave us life is living life with us, near us. Now, this desire to see God or to have proof of God's nearness is nothing new. This was certainly true for Moses and the Israelites, and goodness, can we just say, they certainly had a front row seat of seeing God quite regularly in their journey. From God separating Israel as his own, delivering them from the strong arm of Pharaoh and Egypt, testing them in the wilderness, and then calling them to be set apart for him. God made his covenant with them through the Ten Commandments. And time and time again, we read that God's, Israel saw God's power on display to their benefit. And yet, while Israel had come to know God in the miraculous, they struggled, as I think we often do, to see God in the everyday, Monday moments of their life. Now, it's pretty hard to summarize Israel's journey in just a few moments, but I'm going to try this morning for the sake of time. You'll recall that God delivered Israel from the strong arm of Pharaoh under the leadership of Moses, and then the Lord promised to be with Israel as they made their way through the desert en route to the promised land. Israel accepted God's promise, God's covenant, and uh, he then called Moses to come up to Mount Sinai where he would meet with him and give him the instructions to building the tabernacle or the place, the physical place where God would dwell amongst the nation of Israel. So Moses, going to the mountain, leaves Aaron in charge of the Israelites and he obeys God. And this is when all the chaos breaks loose, right? Because despite the covenant that God had made with Israel and his promise to be with them, the people start to get antsy. That's probably understating it. Moses has gone up to the mountain. He's been gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Nobody knows exactly where he really is or when he's going to come back. These people are in the middle of nowhere. And remember, they probably have no idea how they really got there because they've been following Moses all along, and now he's missing in action. And so you have to wonder if Israel is standing there now wondering, has God left the building have you ever had that experience? Has God ever seemed silent despite your prayers, despite your pleas for guidance or direction, even for daily provisions? I think that's where Israel is at at this point in the journey. And so they take matters into their own hands, and they somehow coerce Aaron into creating the golden calf. Now you know where we're at in the story, right? Now different scholars will tell you different things about this statue, some believe it was a god that Israel had become familiar with during their stint in Egypt. But others believe this was simply the Israelites' attempt at giving Yahweh physical form, an attempt to comfort themselves by summoning God, or at least his perceived likeness, into their midst for fear that he had left them and taken Moses. And how on earth were they going to survive in this place without their leaders, without their god? 
Israel had grown so accustomed to seeing God move in miraculous ways through plagues and parting seas, water from rocks, manna and quail fresh and new every morning that now, without such evidence, when a more normal pace of life had kicked in, they grew fearful that they'd been abandoned. They struggled to find God in the common things of their lives. And so they built this spectacular monument in an attempt to reorient themselves to the glorious presence of God in their midst. Israel commits this overt act of offense against God. And of course, God is completely aware of what's going on down in the camp. But back on the mountain, he tells Moses to leave him and to go deal with what he called his stiff-necked people. Not a compliment. He's calling them stubborn, obstinate. He says to Moses, leave me alone so that I may burn in my anger against them and so that I can destroy them. This is not Israel's finest moment. But remember, Moses is a shepherd, and his shepherd instincts kick in, and he begins to plead with God on behalf of Israel, asking God to have mercy on his people, asking God not to destroy them. He reminds God, if you could imagine that, he reminds God of the covenant he made with Abram to make his people as numerous as the stars and to give them the land that was promised to them. And then this amazing thing happens in Exodus 32, verse 14. We read that God relents. This is amazing. The problem is that when Moses returns to the camp, he finds that Israel hasn't just built the golden calf as if that wasn't enough. They've just really gone wild. The camp is in complete disarray, and Moses, in his righteous fury, lets them know that they have royally messed up. But in spite of his anger, Moses returns to God and pleads for his people once again, begging God to forgive them. He even offers himself as an offering of atonement in the place of Israel to redeem their sins. But God is unwilling to accept this kind of trade. And so he sends Moses away again, back to Israel, assuring Moses that he's not going to go back on his word. Israel will be delivered to the promised land. However, God will no longer be going before them. He will no longer lead the way. Instead, he will send an angel in his place to ensure their safe arrival. Because God, being God, cannot be in the presence of such sinfulness. And so when Moses returns to the camp with this word to his people, they finally start to realize the extent of their error. You know that expression, you don't really know what you've got until it's gone? I think that's what Israel is experiencing at this point. Because while they had grown impatient with God, while he and Moses were up on Mount Sinai for those 40 days and 40 nights, they now realize that what they face is the true absence of God, God's unwillingness to continue with them. And while I'm sure in any other circumstance, having an escort of the angel of the Lord would be quite a thing, remember that up till this point, Israel had been led by Yahweh himself. They had known the complete and utter rest that comes in having all your needs met because that's exactly the way they had been guided by God up till this point in the journey. 
And you have to wonder if at this point, Israel now begins to have some flashback moments, recalling the many miraculous manifestations of God along the way and wondering how they would possibly be able to continue, how much longer this journey was going to take them and how much more difficult it would be without Yahweh out in front of them leading the journey home. And so in a final effort of reconciliation, Moses returns to and pleads with God one more time, begging him to change his mind and to accompany Israel personally through the rest of the way out of the wilderness. And at this point in Exodus 33, we're allowed to enter the tent with Moses, if you will. He says to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You've told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If this is true, that you look favorably on me, then let me know your ways so that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. Moses nor Israel had any assurance of what things were going to look like from this point moving forward. They were all afraid of what their journey was going to look like from this point on without their ability to see God in their midst. And so graciously and kindly then we read God's response to Moses. He says, Moses, I will personally go with you. I will give you rest. Everything will be fine. Did you hear that, Moses? God is listening he is willing. But you know, Moses is so caught up in imagining what life would be like without God in not being able to see him clearly that he just keeps going. He's on a roll. He says, if you don't go personally with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you're not with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. And God, patient, and gracious says once again to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Now it would seem at this point that the problem is solved, right? God is forgiving Israel for their heinous acts, forgetting his fury, and returning to the head of the pack in this amazing race through the wilderness. So all should be right. But Moses much like Israel and perhaps much like us, has become a bit of a miracle junkie. He's grown so accustomed to and comforted by the visible and tangible acts of God that have accompanied him in the journey up to this point that he decides to push the envelope with God just a little further. <laughs> he goes on pleading with God, saying, Then show me your glorious presence. Hello? earth to Moses. God has just had mercy on you and your people, and he said he'd go with you, which you know is a pretty big deal because you remember that whole deliverance from Pharaoh thing? The parting of the sea, the manna and quail in the desert, the water from the rock. But you want more? You want to see God? I mean, this is one of those moments I want to bat Moses upside the head, don't you think? At the same time, I feel like I can completely relate to Moses' request 
Because if God had provided tangible evidence of his presence in the past, why not now? Why not in this way? I mean, frankly, Moses was kind of on a roll in terms of asking God for things. So was this one last request really such a big deal? And yet God in his sovereignty uses this moment to set the record straight. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. He continues, look, stand near the crevice on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. But my face will not be seen. Who is Moses to demand a command performance from the Lord? Nobody. And while God makes it clear that though he is most certainly the one still in charge, the one calling the shots, he also graciously demonstrates his understanding of Moses' need for a tangible affirmation of his promise. Recognizing the difference between seeing God's face and seeing his goodness, Dennis Kenlaw once wrote, you can have a spiritual experience that is very exciting and yet contentless. Or you can gain an insight into the character of the eternal that will change you forever. Moses asked to see God's glory. God showed Moses his goodness, something Moses was already quite familiar with but still very much in need of. And I wonder... How often are we like Moses? We have been assured by God that he is with us, that he dwells with us. Any number of times God reminds us of his promised presence, that he is near. He says, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong, be courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Even Jesus, in his final words before ascending to the Father, reminds us, comforts us with the assurance that he goes with us. He says, be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again and again, God reminds us of the promise of his presence, that he dwells with us, and yet we, like Moses and like Israel, have such expectations of what God's presence should look like sometimes, don't we? Expectations of the miraculous, of seeing God's face. And I fear that in these expectations, in our search for assurance of God's presence through the miraculous, we are missing the everyday evidences God provides in the most common ordinary seconds and moments of our lives. He is here. How can we miss the nearness of God, God with us, when we consider just the most basic realities of our lives? 
that for the last 60, in the last 60 seconds, you have inhaled and exhaled life-giving breath somewhere between 40 and 60 times, and you've never had to think about it once. If you had COVID this past year, you recognize how significant that is. How about thermoregulation? I didn't even know what that was until recently when I started asking the question, what's the deal by which our bodies regulate a normal temperature of 98.6 degrees? Do you know what all has to happen inside of you to make that possible? I'm not going to explain it, and you don't want me to anyway, because I'm not a scientist. But it is amazing. And how is this not evidence of God's nearness to us, that he sustains and keeps us each and every moment of our lives? And yet, because we are people who long to be wowed, people who are drawn to the sensational, we are prone to place expectations on God as to how he should demonstrate his presence in our midst. Bible scholar Peter N. says that we often think of how God ought to be rather than how he has actually revealed himself. And if we learn anything from the experience of Moses and the Israelites, I believe it's that God is God. He will be faithful to his word. He will go with us, and we can find rest in that assurance. But we're also reminded that God is the one calling the shots. He will make his presence known when and how he so chooses, and he cannot be domesticated, neither in the fashioning of idols nor in the manipulation of his creation. So with that in your mind, now I'm going to ask you to fast forward about 1,500 years after this encounter between Yahweh and Israel to the story we just heard Ben read a few moments ago. Still faithful to his promise to go with them, the word has now become flesh and is dwelling amongst Israel, Jesus. On one hand, his arrival on this earth was certainly miraculous, though few recognized it as such, but a virgin birth. But at the same time, he came in such a lowly manner, right? Born in a cattle stall, and for 33 years, the presence of God is tangible amongst his people. This miraculous absurdity of God in flesh, almost too extreme to be comprehended. And so this week, in the Christian year, we arrive to Palm Sunday, the day that marks the occasion where God welcomed, God's people welcomed the Lord into the city of Jerusalem. This was the very deliverance that they had been awaiting from the very beginning. It was underway, and you better believe that they had expectations of God, just like they did back in the wilderness on that day. As the people gathered and they threw their cloaks in the road to pave the way worthy of the Messiah, surely they expected that what they were about to see and be a part of was some spectacular and grand political revolt that in the same dramatic and pronounced way God had delivered their ancestors from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, so he would now dramatically and decisively deliver them from the oppression of Caesar and the Roman government. And so as they waved their palm branches in the air, surely they thought this was a well-orchestrated setup for a moment where God would liberate them. Kicking butt, taking names, if you will. 
demonstrating his sovereignty and swiftly empowering the kingdom of God to conquer the kingdom of this world. And they weren't completely wrong, were they? But how strange it must have seemed as they postured themselves outside the city gates, awaiting Jesus' arrival, when they were expecting such pomp, such circumstance, to see Jesus, God in flesh, peacefully entering the city on, of all things, a donkey. To see him weep for Jerusalem and then willfully surrender himself to the forces of Rome's authority just a few days later. I'll tell you, I think I would have missed it. I wonder if I would have been looking over his shoulder beyond Jesus to see if the armies were following nearby, positioning myself for a moment of rescue and missing the realization that God himself was in my midst. They were not seeing what they expected, but they were seeing God. The question is, did they realize it? Or were they like the Israelites back in the desert all those years ago, blinded by their grandiose expectations of God? And if we are the people of God, people who have been saved not only from something, but for something, then perhaps we have been entrusted with the promise of his presence so that we know and understand that God is not a deity who is removed from his people, who sits in the heavens and only awaits moments of crisis in which to intervene in some grand fashion, but rather an ever-present God who dwells with us, who is incapable of being domesticated or limited to the manifestation of our human imaginations. I'll finish by telling you this story. A few years ago, a good friend of mine went through a crisis. It was a traumatic crisis, to say the least. He had been confronted about a sinful offense in a very public manner, and he had to wade through days of humiliation and guilt and shame. And he recalls feeling remorseful to his core, and yet at the same time, somehow numb to everything in the world around him. He was literally stunned by his shame. And so he buried himself in this emotional cocoon of sorts, secluding himself in every way you can imagine and honestly wondering if the storm of life was ever going to pass. He pleaded with God to forgive him, to take away his shame, even if that meant ending his life. And I'm grateful to tell you today that of course God would forgive him, that God would eventually allow him to rise above his shame because God knew another way through the desert that he was in rather than death. But in the middle of this crisis, my friend tells me he realized a couple of weeks after this horrible confrontation that he needed a haircut. And I thought, what a funny thing to remember in the midst of a desert, right? And yet he says as he ran the clippers through his overgrown locks of hair, he suddenly had this keen sense of God's presence, realizing that, realizing that despite his own feelings of shame and embarrassment, which were causing him to feel near death emotionally, the hair that he was clipping from his head was a reminder to him that God was still there, still giving him life and breath, still causing his hair to grow with each passing day a tangible reminder 
that despite his circumstances, God was near, dwelling with him and manifesting his presence, not only in the miraculous, but in this most common area, this most common task of his life. And it leads me to wonder, what would it look like if we, God's people, were more intentional to see God dwelling among us, if we stopped looking past his goodness in search of his glory by pausing to recognize him in seemingly mundane moments of our lives, if we did as one author advised and trusted God's promise more than our perception? What if we choose to acknowledge God with us in the most normal events of today, while we're sitting in class, while we're in the cafeteria line, while we're laughing in our dorm room with friends? Would our identity as God's people then become more obvious? Not because we're stopping on the street corner pointing to every manifestation of God we can find, but because that discipline makes us people who are grateful, people who are mindful of God with us, people who recognize the audience of one for whom we labor and serve. This is my deepest prayer for the church today, for you. And so as we close this morning, I want you to have these reminders from Scripture in your mouths, in your hearts, in your spirits. Will you stand and join me in reading from God's Word? The Lord reminds us, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The nearness of God is my good. The Lord reminds us, I will establish my dwelling in your midst and I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God and you will be my people. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. When was the last time you saw God? My hunch is that if we look carefully, we will find it was not so long ago. Let's pray together. God, we are your people. We are saved because of your great love, mercy, and kindness, and we rest in the assurance that you dwell with us. Help us to acknowledge your presence in our daily lives, in all things, both miraculous and mundane, so that we might know you in greater ways and make you known to a world that needs you, our God, Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Go with the assurance that God is with you. You are sent.